0: He's a professor, uh, director of the Marine Institute, part of the School of Biological and Marine Scientists, uh, all part of the Faculty of Science and Engineering. And we're gonna talk about his work again at Plymouth University uh, on microplastics. So, Rich, thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background. How did you get interested and aware of microplastics?
1: So, I'm a marine biologist by training. And um, when I was studying for my PhD, I had lots of experiments set up on the shoreline and what I realised was that every day as I went back to look at those experiments I'd actually got items of marine debris accumulating there. Most of it was plastic. I had to clear it from my experiments and it got me curious in the topic. So I started working with voluntary groups doing beach cleanups and because I was a scientist in training I, I got really fascinated by the data that was being collected. I started to put it into spreadsheets. I started to try and puzzle out You know, what are the types of plastic? What are the most abundant types of litter? Um, And once I made a kind of chance observation, I suppose, that actually at that time, the really small items of plastic were not being counted or recorded or removed. And it struck me that they were actually the most abundant, these really small pieces. And so when I started to teach students myself, I set some of them a challenge. I said, you know, go and find me the smallest items on the beach. And they came back with sand samples. And in amongst those samples, we saw pieces that certainly didn't look like sand, uh, brightly colored pieces, uh, smaller than the grains of sand themselves. And we confirmed that those were indeed uh, plastic. And this led to the first (laughs) scientific paper on the topic of microplastic published in the Journal Science in 2004.
0: Oh, wow. So what did you see in the larger pieces versus the smaller pieces? What was the differences? Well, Size. Well, right. But what about shape? Um, what other characteristics of the small pieces did you notice that were important?
1: So I think I guess the key point really here is that, you know, you often see the newspapers referring to plastic debris or marine pollution, marine litter, as though it's one thing. Uh, and particularly with plastics, which are the most abundant type of most abundant category of, of litter in the marine environment. It really is all shapes and all sizes. You know, Literally, there are some items at one end of the scale that are so big, you can see them from satellites in space. At the opposite end of the scale, we've got pieces that are so small, they're right at the limits of our ability to detect them with the best analytical equipment. Most scientists in the field believe there'll be nanoplastics, nanopieces of plastic litter out there, but they're really currently below the limit of detection. So we've got sizes spanning orders of magnitude. We've got a whole range of different shapes and colors on top of that. And then, if you overlay that with the different types of chemical formulations, the different plastics and the different chemical additives, there's thousands of different chemical permutations. So, I guess my overriding point is plastic litter isn't one thing, it's many things. It's the most heterogeneous, the most diverse form of contaminants that I've worked on in my career. And that means that the types of impact, the types of harm are going to vary according to the type of debris. And it also means that the the sources, the origins, and indeed then the solutions to this challenge are also incredibly diverse. And and that that spans the size range. I, I don't think I'd call the small out as being particularly different to the large. The point is we've got heterogeneity.
0: What are you noticing, though, about the smaller pieces? Are they spherical? Are they rough still? You know, are they sharp to the touch? Like, what are you noticing about them?
1: their shape and size can be really quite variable. I mean, microplastics are now defined as pieces less than five millimetres in size, which is a heck of a lot bigger than the microscopic pieces that we first described in in that paper. But it was actually a a policy working group in the US, actually, in coma with your uh, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric uh, Administration. And, And in that meeting, we decided to policy partly drove the 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 discussion that led to microplastics being described as pieces less than five millimetres why because there was a view that pieces less than five millimetres were likely to have different interactions with organisms and much more likely to be ingested to be eaten and perhaps cause effects that way compared to entanglement that we see with the larger items in terms of shapes uh, and and sizes then we're talking less than five millimeters but some are fibrous in nature they're long and thin others like the microbeads from cosmetics are spherical others like the particles from tire wear abrasion on the road are highly irregular in shape so actually there's an amazing diversity of different shapes and sizes even at this this micro level
0: yeah that's really interesting how long do you think it takes? Uh, various plastics to break down into these small microplastic sized pieces?
1: Well, some particles are released to the environment already in the microplastic size range. Um, and there you could list, for example, the microbeads that were used in, in rinse off cosmetics, that we've seen legislation in some countries to prohibit those. You could also list the particles from the abrasion of tyres as you drive your car along the road. Those particles are also, most of them will be in the microplastic size range and you could also uh, include the uh, the fibers from the the washing and the wearing of textiles and we've published papers highlighting the importance of all of those but i would say that probably the most important source of microplastics in the environment is the fragmentation of larger items lemonade bottles crisp packets everyday items that we know are present in the sea in their original form over time they will break down into smaller and smaller pieces how long that takes will depend on the environment, where they where they end up in a sunny tropical beach with high levels of ultraviolet, the plastic can become brittle really quite quickly, and uh, relatively small mechanical action from wave and wind can cause them to, to start to fragment. If the plastic ends up as a solid item down in the, the, the cold, the dark, the deep sea, that deterioration may take considerably longer. So we really are guessing, some say that plastics could could last for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, progressively breaking down into smaller and smaller
0: pieces. Well, has anyone set up a lab with, you know, tumblers and, you know, wave chambers and things like that to simulate different conditions? You know, like when products are tested all the time in labs like that, where they're torn, they're pulled, they're stretched, they're squashed. What about a lab for plastics that does the same thing?
1: Well, certainly we've looked at for example the effects of increase of, of ultraviolet light there are test rigs that are designed to test plastics to make sure that they're re- reliable that they'll last while you want them to last and that's one of the key challenges here that of you want to rely on plastic to deliver functionality plastic isn't the enemy so while it's a lightweight part of a car or an airplane that helps to reduce fuel usage and reduce carbon emissions you absolutely want it to be reliable and and the challenge is the minute, of course, those plastic items, whether it's a lemonade bottle or, or whatever, end up in the environment as litter, how can they know it's magically time to self-destruct? So you can use the same kind of uh, testing to look at things like mechanical strength and deterioration under under ultraviolet. But that's very simplistic compared to the range of conditions in the natural environment that I alluded to a moment ago, where you could be everything from, you know, the cold, dark depths of the deep sea to a tropical beach to encapsulated in sea ice, you know, a really diverse range of different conditions the plastic might find itself in.
0: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives in our world. Even though this podcast gets... Well, if you knew the various ballpark times in which stuff degraded, what would that? Th- how would that help you? You think? What
1: would that tell you? Well, I mean, I suppose I, I'm not convinced that it would. I mean, we we know we've got pretty good data uh, estimates of large items of plastic to the ocean. It depends when you say would it help me. I mean, whether you're thinking about the question theoretically or whether really you're asking the question of would it help us move towards solutions? And I think we already know. You know, I've already indicated that most of the microplastics in the environment are likely to form by the breakdown of larger items. We already know that those larger items are are harmful, that they present economic harm, harm to wildlife, harm to human health and well-being. And of course, there's growing evidence that the microplastics they become are also harmful. And so really, on the basis of that information, it kind of takes you towards perhaps wanting to better understand and disentangle the solutions. And, you know, while a a sophisticated experiment to work out exactly how long plastics might last in the deep sea compared to a tropical beach would be interesting to do scientifically. I mean, I'd certainly love, love to do it. I'd love to know the answers. I'm not sure it's mission critical to solving the problem. Well,
0: if one plastic can become many, it seems like the number one critical thing to do would be to first avoid it going into the environment. In the first place, and second of all, when it is observed in the environment, get pick up and pick out the macroscopic pieces because each of them could become yep. you know thousands and thousands of other e- pieces so easier like to
1: deal it- with when it's big easier to deal with closer to source and easier to deal with when it's big and your first statement absolutely spot on we need to stop it going into the environment um and and here I would echo again, plastic isn't the enemy per se there are there are many societal benefits from plastic lightweight parts and cars Save carbon emissions, uh, even food packaging that helps to reduce uh, food wastage by extending the life of food and drink in the supermarkets, an incredible diverse array of different benefits to society and indeed the environment. And yet all of those benefits could, if we wanted to, be achieved without these emissions to the environment. There is absolutely no need for a lemonade, an empty lemonade bottle to end up in the ocean neither is the need for parts from cars to end up in the ocean or crisp packets or or things like fishing nets we can manage if what it's about is managing those things better and a key aspect of that that regrettably i think we failed to really consider is making sure that at the design stage of a a new plastic product we're considering what happens to it at the end of its lifetime regrettably that the business model for for most uh, plastics particularly the single use ones is very much the linear use of carbon coming from fossil oil and gas, so a non-renewable carbon source, via short-lived applications to incredibly persistent waste. Uh, And that's the model that we've had since the 1950s. It's driven by the convenience that having a disposable society can bring, the convenience that all those throwaway items bring, that we can have that benefit for a second and throw it away without a care. Now, in the 1950s, we were making about 5 million tonnes of plastic globally. And although the wastage associated with that throwaway living wasn't nice, it was probably manageable on a global scale. Today, we're making 360 million tonnes of plastic. 40% of it is single use. And that's the burden of waste to the environment, whether it's in managed systems or as litter, that simply is, is unsustainable. So we need to change and update the business model from the 1950s of this linear use of resource and drive ultimately towards reducing, of course, any unnecessary uses of plastic, um, maybe by, by, by direct reduction, but also by reuse of some plastic items. But also we need to design for better circularity. Many polymers are inherently recyclable, but unfortunately, because of this lack of thought at the design stage, we're not necessarily designing products with that end of life fate in mind. Unfortunately, when I speak to the product designers, they say end of life. Well, that was never in the brief. I was asked to design a, a product that would be functional, hold the lemonade, if you like, and be attractive to the consumer. But nobody asked me to think about what happened next. That's the bit that has to change so we can get the benefits from plastic without these, I would say, largely unintended side effects. Except I think, you know, maybe the writing has been on the wall for some decades and more could have been done. To, to see this off. And, you know, there I'd point to the, the legislation that we're seeing on the microbeads in cosmetics. And certainly in the UK, that evidence came predominantly from research papers from my laboratory. And you think, well, isn't that great that a, that a, that a PhD student could contribute directly to policy? But then you realise that the patent on the use of these small pieces of plastic and cosmetics was filed 70 years previously. And, You have to ask the question, did nobody in the industry ever ask the question, where are all those thousands and thousands of tons of plastic going? Because they're inevitably going to escape down the plug hole and you have a shower. The citizen can't take them to be recycled. Many of them we know are going to pass through wastewater treatment. So, you know, really there's a question to industry there at the design stage, you know, think about the environmental consequences of products. Think about end of life. Think about particles that are generated whilst your products are in use. And if we're to achieve a society, the real benefits that plastic can bring without these unintended side effects, we have to step up to the challenge there and design products in a far more responsible manner than we have done so far. If you like this podcast,
0: please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. But but the problem though is how do you do that? Because if I design, let's say a a plastic water bottle so it'll never leak you know i know it's ideal but never leaks it'll never you know nothing it'll never give anything to the environment well then the seesaw that the trade-off is that it'll be incredibly persistent so if someone doesn't fish it out of a lake or river or wherever it sits it's it's going to be pollution but on the other hand if i make it where it degrades now in the environment it's going to get out there and it's hard to stop it now it's going to degrade and go all over the
1: place the key part, you've identified some key things there, and one of them is the durability of plastics. And I, I, and I alluded to that earlier on. You can't have it to be durable and at the same time magically disappear. So having it to biodegrade isn't a solution to the challenge of, of marine litter. In fact, having it as a durable, refillable, particularly if it's a water bottle, when we're in a country where there's perfectly good drinking water coming from the tap, let's say, a refillable is ideal. No, what we've got to do is make sure that we design that bottle so that it is compatible with um, recycling streams at the end of its life, that it has a value in recycling. And I'm looking at in front of me right now a lemonade bottle from a supermarket near to me. It's made of a polymer that we've known for decades is highly recyclable, recyclable, a polymer called PET. And most of the p- plastic soft drinks are made of that polymer, the soft drink bottles. And yet, if I take an audience of recyclers into a supermarket, they will immediately tell me that there's only a relatively small proportion of those bottles that they're interested in. They're interested in it having to recycle the bottles that are transparent, clear plastic, not those that have got colorings in them, green bottles, red bottles, blue bottles, because that colouring immediately and directly halves the value in recycling. So although the bottle is still in theory recyclable, and interestingly, I see some nations pushing for increased Use of recyclable bottles, but the, but but the word there falls short of the mark because, as I've said, my my red and orange coloured bottles are recyclable, but actually they're not viable to recycle in most instances because somebody at the design stage has chosen chosen to take a perfectly recyclable clear bottle and incorporate a colouring. What's the colouring doing there? It's nothing to do with protecting the food and drink. It's solely associated with brand differentiation. So we've taken there a polymer we've known for decades can be recycled and have value in recycled streams and made it challenging for the recycler to turn it to a profit by adding something to achieve brand differentiation. And that's as simple as it gets. It's making sure from the design stage that you're designing products that are as compatible as possible with end-of-life options. And we're lucky enough in Europe, and I think it's the same in the US, to have quite sophisticated collection separation infrastructure to take things to be recycled and yet we're failing to design the products to be compatible with those systems in the first place so there are many things that we can do at the design stage to make sure we're designing plastics more responsibly than we have done
0: so one one thing could be let's say for soft drinks you know it, it has to be clear plastic if you're going to use plastic and you can put a label on it and the label has to be separable from the plastic later on and then maybe that would create a stream that's more recyclable? Is that an example?
1: Well, absolutely. And, and yet, you know, if you go to Japan, you'll find by vo- voluntary action uh, within the industry, they've had that very system for well over a decade now, somewhere approaching 15 years. And, and I can think of a, I won't mention the name, but I can think of a popular uh, lemonade-like fizzy drink that comes in a green bottle in many countries around the world. You go to Japan, you find it, it's been delivered in a clear bottle for quite a long time. So it's a problem that can be solved from the design stage, and and where you've got waste management and policy acting together, they can achieve that change. But I think we need to increasingly start to see that level of responsibility taken by the industry as well. You know, if you can produce it in that format in Japan and you you sell that lemonade worldwide, why can't you do the same for other
0: countries? Well, what's what's wrong with colored plastic? Why can't that be recycled and manufacturers be forced to use? you know, existing color stock, maybe add more color to it or speckles or something. But, you know, what's so bad about uh, different colors?
1: Well, there's nothing fundamentally bad about having the different colors. The problem is that the more permutations of different plastic you create, the more of a separation job there is to do at the recycling plant. So one of the fundamental problems we've got with with short-lived plastics, plastics in short-lived applications. So the packaging, for example, is that we've created an immense diversity of different types of polymer formulation. You know, you think of a plastic squeezable ketchup bottle compared to the, the bottle that's less squeezable. It's a different formulation. You think of all the different types of colorings that we've got to achieve brand differentiation. It's not that any of them are wrong. It's just that you present that mixture to a recycler. It makes it almost impossible to separate it all out I mean, you know, do you think of the cost of the infrastructure of having a recycling plant that could recycle all of the clear PET bottles and you then scale that up so that it has a separate stream to separate every imaginable colour of PET that's been created by the designers? It just doesn't stack up to the economies of scale. So for short lived applications of packaging, in many cases, you could manage with a clear PET item. So it wouldn't matter if it was a tray for fruit or a bottle for lemonade it could all be recycled in the same way and could join not just a circular economy, but a closed loop circular economy where an old bottle or an old tray can become a new one. So it's not that the colorings are fundamentally um, unrecyclable, it's just that it makes it incredibly challenging. If you've ever had uh, an infant or a toddler that's done some of their first painting, perhaps at at the kindergarten and they've mixed together different colors, they've ended up with a kind of gray colored mess. Well, that's the challenge of recycling. If you throw into it, a myriad of different colours. You're going to end up with a with a, a grey coloured polymer that has less less value because you can do less with it. You could turn it into a pallet or some garden furniture, but it's hard to turn it back into a lemonade bottle because it's not going to be as attractive. So we need to simplify the palette of polymers that are used in in rapid um, applications such as packaging to make it easier for those polymer those polymer items to to join a more circular economy.
0: Has anyone looked at um... I wouldn't call it a microbiome but if you look at plastic you know in a body of water let's say you know there's big pieces small pieces and they're kind of all floating in the same area are there certain microbes that tend to be attracted and do the other microbes that have been identified that actually eat some of this plastic and help its degradation or is it all physical that that degrades it
1: well every surface that's emerged in in water will acquire a microbial film uh, relatively quickly and the the nature of that microbial film will initially be driven by the physical and chemical properties of the surface so you would get a different kind of biofilm accumulating on glass or metal to to plastic over time as that biological film um, develops then you will find that it that, 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 that irrespective of the underlying material the film becomes the films start to become similar they start to converge but those microorganisms are using it as a home they're not uh, really degrading uh, the plastic in any meaningful uh, meaningful sense. And indeed, if, if if we did have microbes that would degrade plastic rapidly, then of course we'd be looking for a new wonder material. Because the last thing you want is the you know the lemonade bottles in the supermarket, the parts and cars, cars and airplanes to be uh, degrading in front of you. You know, one of the key benefits of plastic is indeed its durability. It's resistant to that resistance to that kind of biological attack.
0: How do you know that there's no microbes that eat plastic? Is anyone I, didn't there weren't,
1: yeah, I didn't say there weren't any, but what I said was that it's not doing it any kind of meaningful rate because one of the things that you need to rely on is the durability of those plastics. There are, you can, uh, in industrial settings, you can try to enhance certain types of microbes um, to attempt to degrade the plastics more quickly, but there isn't a fix for the natural environment, if you like. It's going to be too slow to cope with the 340 million tons of plastic that we're making every year. In, in, you know, that's either going to landfill, because if it's incinerated, it's not creating it's creating different kinds of problems, or as litter. So the, the, the microbial breakdown, which we touched on earlier, you can't have that reliability and durability, and at the same time expect it to degrade magically. In a meaningful time scale. as the molecular weight right, of the it decreases, it, it, it will eventually become biologically available. But the timescales are just too slow.
0: But I, don't, I thought we don't know the timescales. People surmise that some stuff could be thousands of years, some stuff could be a lot less. But we, I thought it's not known yet.
1: Well, it, what we do know is that we've still got, uh, if I talk to the polymer chemists, they will certainly tell me that all of the plastics that we've ever produced, unless they've been incinerated, are still with us. We certainly know that we've got parts of World War Two aeroplanes that have sunk to the seabed that have been shot down in action. The parts are uniquely numbered and we know that they've been found in the carcasses of seabirds decades later. Um, It's very easy to, to, to trace and date many items of packaging. So we know quite a lot about the persistence of plastics in the environment. And, you know, we certainly know that it's almost impossible now to walk on a shoreline virtually anywhere without encountering plastic. If I take a submersible down to a deep sea canyon, we find our rubbish is beaten there. So, you know, any degradation that is occurring is occurring at a rate that's far too slow to be doing anything meaningful in terms of addressing the the challenge of the accumulation of plastics in the environment.
0: Yeah, it just sounds like there's no one solution. There's not even two or three because you have to address the stuff that's out in the environment and maybe find some way to degrade it. The up, main, and then you don't the, want to avoid putting new stuff in the
1: environment so it's, i would say you know, you're right there isn't there certainly isn't one solution absolutely not there's no silver bullet here and that's an important um it's an important thing to recognize if i were advising a rich philanthropist let's say uh, as to how to invest their money to solve the problem at the moment i certainly wouldn't be advising them to go out try and clean up the oceans i would be advising them to help The scientists and those in technology and industry that are trying to turn off the tap to stem the flow of plastics to the ocean through through the kinds of things that we talked about already Um, because we can't pull it out as fast as it's going in and if we focus on cleanup uh, approaches then we're kind of accepting that the current business model the business as usual is acceptable that we carry on polluting the oceans and the best thing we can figure out is to then try and pull it out so i think the investment needs to come in in strategies and this is the frustration really after 30 odd years of working on it you know the things that are center stage in terms of solution haven't changed they are about reduce reuse recycle the devil is in the detail of knowing which particular applications and polymers do we use in different circumstances which products and in which circumstances do we design the recyclability which products do we decide to reduce the amount of material that's used or do we decide that actually we didn't need them in the first place like a disposable plastic carrier bag at every grocery store you know if we're going out with the intent to go shopping we need to take a reusable Bag with us in the same way as if we're going out and the weather forecast says it's likely to rain, we take a rain. So some of this is about things that we can kind of head off at the pass. We didn't need them in the first place. In other questions, it's about designing for recyclability, and in some, it may also be about designing plastics that will biodegrade either in the environment or in a commercial composter setting. So it's about making sure that we thought about at least the end of life fate for plastics at the design stage and that's the bit that regrettably we've failed to do so far and it needs to change
0: what about though the rubbers on tires and other vehicles that are braiding all the time as we drive them you know uh, our clothing supposedly is somewhat friable and some of the plastics come off of there i mean just there's a lot of plastics in the environment that just i don't see how we can stop using them and i don't see how we can stop them um degrading as we use them so what do we do it seems like we really need to understand what happens to all these plastics in the environment to maybe facilitate uh, them breaking down
1: fast the key thing with the clothing and that you know one of the first studies on the clothing fibers was was from my lab and we showed that um it wasn't necessarily about the washing powder that you used or um the the washing cycle that the main thing that was influencing the rate of shedding was the type of garment you put in to the washing machine in the first place that there were substantial differences between similar looking kind of uh jumper fleecy type garments that some of them were releasing literally 80% more than others and what that points to is there's things even in the existing palette of things that are that are designed that could substantially reduce the amount of fibers that's released But it's not really been thought about considered at the design stage. So as well as designing clothes to be attractive and to be functional and to keep you warm, we need to also be thinking about designing clothes to have have minimal emissions. And as as I've said, you could by doing that, you could probably knock back the emissions by about 80 percent. And of course, at the same time, what effectively you're doing, you're not eliminating the the fibre generation. You're slowing it down. But what you're also doing is pushing towards more sustainable Clothing, you're pushing towards items that will last longer in service. And so you're moving away from the trend towards fast fashion and you've got more sustainable garments that release fibers more slowly. So, in that case, you're not going to eliminate it completely. But if you could knock it back by about 80% at the design stage, that would be a really major improvement. If you couple that with perhaps uh, in, in France, we're seeing an initiative to push towards filters on washing machines as being mandatory. And also in countries like Uh, Those in Europe and in the US, most citizens are connected to very sophisticated wastewater treatment, which will also intercept a good number of those fibres. So you won't eliminate it. But my point is, you could drive it down very substantially below where it sits at the moment in the absence of any thought at the design stage. And the same may likely be true for tyres. You know, the business model is probably towards selling tyres relatively quickly rather than perhaps designing a tyre that would last longer, even if it was slightly more. Um, more expensive
0: yeah i mean 80 80 reduction theoretically is still a tremendous reduction so that makes total sense what about policy how have you seen lawmakers react when policy has been put in front of them in regards to uh, the fatal plastics do they understand do they not what happens it's mixed
1: i think what what i have seen over the last probably the last 15 years is is a convergence on on what i would say is now agreement a consensus if you like that there is a problem with the current production use and disposal of plastics, if I wound the clock back fifteen years, there was disagreement you know and, and it was focused you could say on distraction tactics both by policy and, and industry that there would want to be an argument exa- about exactly how many turtles did it threaten, or exactly how many pieces were they, exactly what size were they and I think we've moved on from that there the, there is still disagreement about absolute numbers and you were referring to that earlier on and wouldn't we like to know and and my point was that I didn't think some of these things were worth chasing down because actually what we've now got is consensus that there is a problem and the solutions to that problem are not in the ocean they're on land and so where that pushes you in terms of the the research budgets is towards better understanding of those those solutions rather than further definition of the problem I mean both would be lovely but with limited resource if we've kind of got a consensus on the problem then we need to move towards solutions in some cases see policy that makes uh, very good sense so you think of a tax on single-use bags at the point of sale in a grocery store why do we need a free bag to carry away shopping that's already incredibly well wrapped What we need to do is to take a bag with us if we're going out with the intent to do some shopping. It's kind of obvious. We need to reverse that almost, you know, inadvertent behavioural training that we've had for for decades that we can go out and expect to have a free bag given us. We've got to reverse that and that won't come automatically. So, you know, those kinds of policies make absolute sense, as I think did the, the policies that we've seen in the US and in Europe to prohibit the use of these Uh, rinse off pieces of plastic in in cosmetic products but then I see other things where I sort of think well yeah I'm not against it but is it going to move the dial very much if we start to ban plastic drinking straws I mean actually you know whether it's paper or plastic do we need to be given a drinking straw every time perhaps we buy the kids a soft drink in in when we go out to a restaurant you know do do we need one every time I appreciate there are some there are some occasions where it's perhaps important but you know some of this is just about reducing and there i think you need to look to the waste hierarchy you know the waste hierarchy talks about reduce reuse recycle and and reduce supplies to all materials if there's something we didn't need in the first place you know a a single use bag whether it's paper or plastic isn't the discussion the the thing is you're going shopping take a bag with you A a single use straw, paper, or plastic. My point is, did I need one in the first place? So we're seeing some good policies, but uh, others I find a little bit more questionable. And I think it's relatively easy to start to ban the things that maybe we didn't need in the first place. I think the challenges will come where it's clear that plastic is the best material to do the job. How do you give the guidance, the policy instruments to make sure? that we're using plastic in those contexts more responsibly. So, for example, um, perhaps a move to mandate recycled content in new products could be a good um, demand pull. It would help to move away from those poorly designed, difficult to recycle uh, items, because that low value wouldn't, wouldn't help if you've got a mandated use of recycled content. That's going to make people converge on designing products that are more compatible with recycling. And in one sense, it is almost as simple as that. If there's product designers out there listening to this, go and talk to some waste managers, establish whether your product you're designing can be readily separated, sorted and then recycled into a new product of similar value. That's the question to ask, really, to to help to achieve circularity. And I think policy measures can can help to to achieve that. So, you know, yes, we need in essence, we're going to need cooperation from policy, from industry. And from each and every one of us to tackle this problem. But the key thing that I said earlier on is that I do believe this is a problem we can fix. It isn't about us not using plastics. It's not um, the same as, as you know turning off the lights or not taking long haul flights. It's simply about us starting to use them more responsibly than than we have done so far. So that you know, I see this very much as a as a problem we can fix. But it's going to take us all working together.
0: Has right? anyone looked at? Um materials that use significant recycled plastic and what is their fate and how do they degrade and how do they affect the environment is there is there a trade-off there that if we're using recycled content in materials that they somehow are worse for the environment or does, does there not seem to be
1: i think it's a really good question and you need to look at you know that's why we need the proper scientific evidence about different solutions and that's frustratingly what i sometimes see Coming to market now is, is, is items that purport to be a solution, but they're not necessarily properly tested and evaluated. And we need that evidence in the round. I hear people say that clothing made out of recycled uh, material is more likely to generate microfiber. But I haven't seen any hard evidence to actually um, to actually establish that one way or another. And, you know, there's part of me that thinks, well, is that a myth created by the manufacturers that are not using recycled um, textiles so we do need to establish those things if i talk to some of the the industry using plastic bottles some of them will tell me that if the the bottle's well designed they could get that bottle to go around in a circular system about 20 times before it becomes um, you know the plastic the polymer becomes inferior that it's not going to do its job properly so if it goes around about 20 times what they're kind of saying is each time you need to add about five percent new polymer Um, so you're not eliminating the problem but if you've reduced the amount of -of end-of-life plastic bottles you're you're creating by 95 percent because each one's going around about 20 times and you've reduced the amount of uh, fossil oil and gas you're needing as a carbon source that's a pretty major advantage so yeah you're right we need to check that the things that are being purported as solutions aren't inadvertently making things worse we need that proper evidence base behind it you know that the the broad headings above the solutions haven't changed that much. You know, they are about reduce, reuse and recycle. But what we failed to do is to really gather proper evidence about how those things trade off and whether in in some circumstances, as you say, uh, a product that's made to be recyclable could have unintended consequences. So we need that proper evidence base to inform the solutions. In my view, I think we need that proper evidence base now more urgently then we need more information about exactly how quickly it degrades in the environment or exactly how many fish might have ingested plastic. Because as I say, there is a consensus that the current use and disposal of plastics is not sustainable.
0: Very good. Richard, uh, where's the best place for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go?
1: So we've got a, I'm based at the University of Plymouth in the UK. Um, I've got a website. My team is the International Marine Litter Research Unit. And if you just Google that, you'll go to a website which has got information about the papers that we've published. There are you'll see some uh, video recordings of various members of the team giving kind of mini lectures, including material for schools. And there's a, a brochure you can uh, download as a, as a PDF, which has got more information in it. I, I certainly don't pretend that there's all the information on our website, but we tried to to, to give a you know a fairly rounded perspective on it.
0: Oh, last question. Have you ever been out to the uh, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch or any of those gyres out in the ocean?
1: No, I haven't. I, I know people that have been there. It would certainly be interesting to go. I know some of the scientists that have been working on those, but uh, actually, no, I've not visited them.
0: Any comments from those scientists? That, did Any questions you asked them that you learned that was interesting? Or would that be subject of another podcast?
1: Maybe a subject to another podcast. I mean, we certainly know that ocean circulation is causing buoyant buoyant items to accumulate in those garbage patches, but it doesn't necessarily make it any easier to collect. They're, they're, they're still very diffuse spread over big areas. And really the solution is to turning off the tap, stemming the flow of plastic to the environment. So it's useful to understand where it's accumulating. That helps you understand perhaps potential impacts on wildlife, the species that might live in, it, live, live in those waters, but it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. It doesn't move the dial towards the the, the solutions which is kind of where I think the cutting edge of the science is now. That's not to say that, you know, the science we've done, that's been done on those those garbage patches hasn't been important. It's been incredibly important in raising attention about the quantities that have accumulated in certain spaces. So the science has been really, really fundamental in helping to kind of move the dial. But as I say, in my view now, there is pretty good consensus that the, the accumulation in the environment is presenting a problem and that that stems from our current practice of use and disposal of plastics and so the the cutting edge of the the field is in my view more about the how to solve it than about exactly how much is out there and exactly how harmful is it because i think we know that with enough clarity to move us to solutions yeah no it makes sense we're we're very good Uh, i think a really interesting
0: subject and I, i appreciate you coming on the podcast
1: not at all no thank you very much
0: if you like this podcast